Know, O prince, that between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the gleaming cities, and the years of the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of, when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world like blue mantles beneath the stars. Nemidia, Ophir, Brythunia, Hyperborea, Zamora with its dark-haired women and towers of spider-haunted mystery, Zingara with its chivalry, Koth, that bordered on the pastoral lands of Shem, Stygia with its shadow-guarded tombs, Hyrcania, whose riders wore steel and silk and gold, but the proudest kingdom of the world was Aquilonia, reigning supreme in the dreaming west. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, black-haired, sullen-eyed, sword in hand, a thief, a reaver, a slayer, with gigantic melancholies and gigantic mirth, to tread the jeweled thrones of the earth under his sandaled feet. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Appendix N Podcast, Episode 13, The Stories of Conan by Robert E. Howard, Part 1. Welcome to the Appendix N Podcast, a Tome Show production. My name is Jeffrey Wynn. This is the show where we read and discuss the authors that influenced Gary Gygax, one of the creators of Dungeons & Dragons. In the 1979 Dungeon Master's Guide, Gygax published a list of his favorite fantasy authors, and this list has come to be known simply as Appendix N. Every month on this show, we will read a book and talk about it. We will review the story and talk about how it relates to the game being played at your table. If you would like to be part of the show, you can email the host of The Tome Show, Jeff Greiner, at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Listen to the end of the episode for a list of some upcoming books and stories. Before we get to the program, I want to take a moment to mention our sponsor, Noble Knight, online retailer of new and out-of-print role-playing games, war games, board games, and miniatures. Since 1997, they have helped thousands of gamers from around the world save money and find exactly what they need. You can find them on the web at www.noblenight.com. Without further ado, let me introduce uh, my co-host, Jeff Wickstrom. Ahoy. And new guest, Peter Foxhaven? Foxhoven? Foxhoven, thank you for having me. Foxhoven, yes. Well, guest and subject matter expert, apparently you're going to uh, be laying down some serious wisdom regarding Conan the Barbarian. I'll yeah. do my best. So it is, it is in this episode that we will begin our review of the stories of Conan by Robert E. Howard. Um, we, this, and I, I believe like we did with Lovecraft, we will, we will probably do three stories uh, an, an episode and since Robert E. Howard himself d- did not actually write that many Conan stories, I believe it is possible to get to all of them eventually uh, during the course of this, sh- of this show. Um, so, of course, everyone should know uh, Jeff Wickstrom by now. He is, he is now my, my uh, co-host and is doing every episode uh, with me. So thank you for coming on this journey with me, Jeff. It is always a pleasure. I am uh, being instructed as I am being entertained. All right. 
And Peter, welcome. This is your first time on the show. Yes, it is. Congratulations. Thank uh, you. you. You successfully figured out how to use Skype and, and plug a headset into, into your, your computer. So that's, harder than, that's harder than it sounds. You have, you have passed the test, and, and you are now part of an elite group of literary reviewers. Excellent. Peter, why don't you tell us, A, what do you like to read, and, and B, what do you like to do in your, in your role-playing games? Okay. Um, as far as I like to read, I mean, obviously, because I'm talking about this, I like Robert E. Howard's work. I really like Sword and Sorcery as a genre, so it's stuff by Fritz Leiber, um, as well as this. I like science fiction a bunch, um, philosophy, which is like what my background is in. So I used to read a lot of like the old German dudes, like Kant and Hegel and that stuff, though that's kind of all boring. As far as um, gaming, I play started playing AD&D 2nd Edition back in the like Living City days, if you guys ever did those organized plays. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, those were super great. And so I started playing actually as a barbarian, go figure, like that kit for fighter, and just kind of took off from there. So I've played all the editions since then and then DM'd mostly 1st and 2nd Edition and have just dipped my toe into 5e. Awesome. Cool, and, and, cool. and how do you, how do you like uh, 5e so far? You know, it's been good. I like the advantage system. Uh, mechanically, it cleans things up. I'm not the strongest math person always. So as far as being able, instead of having to look at where, you know, what stacks and what doesn't for all of these pluses, instead just being like, whatever, you have advantage. That, that, that's been kind of nice. It's like a lazy DM trick, and that, those are good. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I'm really excited about this edition, and I, I, I really can't wait to see uh, where where it goes, and, and I, I just wish uh, Wizards, of, Wizards of the Coast was not keeping the lid so tight on like what their what their plans are, but um, that that is for Jeff Greiner to cover in in the Tome Show, which is all about D and D news and reviews. We are talking about Robert E. Howard, so let me tell you the listeners what I know about Robert E. Howard, and then we'll we'll start talking about the stories. Uh, Robert E. Howard was born in 1906, and he died in 1936. He, he died young. He was born in Texas, the only son of a traveling country physician. Uh, he Traveling with his father exposed him firsthand to tales of violence that would influence his writing, and like many people of the time, he was greatly interested in the sport of boxing. Howard's love of poetry and literature came from his mother, Hester, his earliest stories were historical fiction about Vikings, Arabs, and featured lots of violence. His earliest influences were Jack London, Rudyard Kipling, and Thomas Bulfinch of Bulfinch's mythology fame. In August of 1930, Howard wrote to Weird Tales in praise of a story called The Rats in the Walls by some guy named H.P. Lovecraft. I seem to remember, re remember reviewing that story on this very show. The letter was forwarded to Lovecraft, and the two authors became friends. Howard is considered to have contributed to the Lovecraft mythos, and the correspondence between Howard and Lovecraft contained a lengthy discussion on the frequent element in Howard's writing, that of civilization versus barbarism. Howard held that civilization was inherently corrupt and fragile. So I guess whereas Lovecraft wrote about the, the fraying of human sanity... Howard Howard wrote about the 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 unraveling of civilization. That's that's sort of where I'm I'm getting the uh, com comparison here. 
Howard wrote his first Conan story in 1932, adapting an, an unpublished story called By This Axe I Rule, featuring one of his other protagonists called the Conqueror. Conan would go on to become Howard's most enduring character. Howard sadly committed suicide in 1936 upon learning that his mother was dying of tuberculosis. Uh, so sadly, we he, he only wrote Conan for about four years. So that's that's why we, we, we don't really have a lot of stories. Um, so ap- apparently he wrote he wrote these first three stories all at at once. He wrote The Phoenix on the Sword, The Frost Giant's Daughter, and The God in the Bowl. And he also wrote an, an essay called The Hyborian Age. And he showed them all to his editor at Weird Tales before they were they were uh, were ever published, and only the Phoenix on the Sword of of these stories was published during his his uh, lifetime after his editor gave him some uh, commentary. Uh, the Frost Giant's Daughter was published uh, under the title The Gods of the North, featuring uh, just like a different hero. Um, and The God and the Bull was not published until 1952 in, in space science fiction. So, we've all read, this, read these stories. Jeff, Peter, what'd you think? Pretty good, so huh? I, yeah, yeah, it's actually really good. Um, unlike uh, Peter, for, uh, for instance, I have myself only read about four Robert E. Howard stories, and this, uh, these three are three of them. <clears throat> so this is something that's largely new to me, and I was really impressed by uh, the the beginning of Phoenix on the Sword, which is that monologue that you opened the podcast with, because in a relatively uh, short amount of space, uh, Howard unpacks an awful lot of setting. Um, there's a real sense of where we're talking about the... You know, it's um, it's a version of Europe. It's like you know, three thousand BC or so. It's before all of the nations that we'll, we're familiar with, except for Egypt, uh, which is pretty much exactly like we all remember it to be, except it's called Stygia. Well, I don't I don't remember Egypt because I was I was never there. But um... I'm in Egypt from like the Sesame Street skit where you have Bert and Ernie, and there's a mummy that comes to life, and it he panics Ernie. Right, that was my first exposure to Egypt. Uh, so it's yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's Sesame Street, Egypt. always always teaching you things about the real world that will help you later later in life. Yeah, so I mean, wow, these 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 are are great stories, and we 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 get the sense that that Howard like actually has has a world. I mean, whether whether he's laid it out or or, or not, he's he's at least giving us the the illusion that 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 he has a fully developed. Uh, fantasy world behind his stories, which I, I don't think we've quite seen up to up to this point. I know that with pretty much all of the stories that I at least have read for Appendix N uh, and novels, it has felt to me like the author is more or less making it up as he goes along. I mean, that, that's uh, only what I what I got from from uh, Burroughs, and then then you've you've got folks like. Uh, Dunsany, who are just all all about about the prose, and mm-hmm. you know the the details don't even really really matter. I mean, we 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 haven't read uh, Dunsany's uh, Gods of Pe- Pegania, which I I kind of sort of feel we sh- we should maybe go go back and back and do. Um, 
but but knowing knowing that that Howard like actually wrote an an essay about his world before he 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 ever published these stories certainly gives gives credence to the the, the idea that that he has a world in in mind. What what do you think, Peter? Uh, I'm with you guys. It is kind of nice. Now with Howard, I think he's lucky because he's coming from a time where he can pull on Burroughs, right? So in some of his other work, there is some homage stuff to Edgar Rice Burroughs. And so you can see kind of that sort of making it up as you go along stance. But I think about there's this document um, from March of 1932 that he typed up that's just Hyborian names and where kind of things are uh, laid out. And so it has like Samaria to the south, Aquilonia to the north, Asgard, northwest, Vanaheim to the west, Pictish marches, east, Hyperborea, and to the south, the Aquilonian marches. And then he even goes and like writes out what Sumerian gods are, or he'll write out, you know, names of people in Vanaheim or Asgard or Hyperborea. So it looks like um, in 32, before, well, as you said, when he's writing all these stories together, that he's really being purposeful about the way he's laying out the Hyborian Age. It, it, like, it, it, it is really curious, and I, I, I have to wonder, like, if, if Howard is the, the first person to, to actually do this, to, to actually write, like, someone making a setting. I mean, I, I, I know that, that Tolkien, at, at, at this time, had the Silmarillion in, in, his, in his head, mm-hmm. and which, you know, it, it, it wouldn't be be published until until after his 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 death it like it, it existed as as like you know long form uh poems and things so like like i i really have have to wonder like if if howard was the first person to do what what we all do when when we make a campaign setting is just like draw draw lines and and, and put dots and 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 names on a on a map and actually like figure out where like like where things are and like what's 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 going on and, and that's really cool if he's if he's not the first uh, author to approach uh, approach his stories in that way, he's definitely the first appendix in author, I think that we've uh, that we've come to, and he's certainly the most influential. Uh, I can't look back and say, oh, there's you know so and so who was doing this back in the 19th century. Yeah, yeah. All right. So our our first story is the Phoenix on on the sword, and um, it like it's it's surprising to me that 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 the very first Conan the Barbarian story is is not actually Conan the the Barbarian. It's it's Conan the Middle Aged King, and I, I think we we all know on on some level that that Conan goes through various stages in in his in his career. Like like I I knew that he would eventually. Be, become a king. It's a, it's it's a big part of 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 the movie, where you know Mako says, and and he became a king by his own hand, <laughs> right? So like, mm-hmm. every everyone kind of knows that that Conan eventually be becomes king. I just didn't know that he was he would like his very first story is he is a middle aged aged king. So like, a it it sets up the the idea in all the other Conan stories that you're reading when he's younger, well, you, you know at least that he's going to live this long. Uh, and you know he's going to grow and evolve as a person because when, when we see him in this story, he's, he's you know, 
he's not really talking like a barbarian. Like he's he's talking like like a like a literate person. You know, like a like a like like a thinking, reasoning uh, person. Even even though he is also like ridiculously strong and and violent. Uh, and and there's just there's just so many things in this in this story. We we also have the the evil wizard uh, Thothamon, uh, who is supposed to be in 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 a, a lot of fiction. Apparently, he's Conan's arch nemesis. Even though this is the only story by Howard in which Thothamon actually actually appears. Um, and in this story, they're not really enemies. Yeah, like they don't even interact with each other. <laughs> And like I like I like uh, Thothamon talking about about his his ring. Like he's he's lost his, his magic ring, which is the source of of his power. And this is like twenty years before the Lord of the Rings. Like you you have to think that Tolkien picked up and read this story and and was 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 influenced by it. Oh, that's very possible. But what I find really the most fascinating thing about Phoenix on the Sword is how tightly it is plotted. It's made up of seven scenes total, and the first two of those scenes are just exposition. You have Toth Amon talking to um, Ascalante, the Aquilonian nobleman who is uh, conspiring against Conan. And then you have Conan talking to, uh, what's his name? His buddy is oh, what my uh, notes say. Oh, uh, Prospero. Prospero, um, and it's they have an extremely expository conversation, uh, but it's one that just flows along quickly because Howard is, you know, a really good writer. I am a big fan of this. I you can tell in a lot of ways, especially if you know some about Cull and the kind of character that he was writing, that this was a Cull story. You know, at its initial call, gets kind of the reputation of being the thinking man's barbarian, like the existentialist barbarian, as it were. And so you see a lot of that. Like, there's this line um, in the second scene or second part of this when Prospero's talking to him about the um, Ronaldo, the minstrel, right? Mm -hmm. And how he's like sowing discontent. And Conan has this great line. Um, oh, he's got I'm a soft to find spot the... for artists. Yeah, right? And he talks about how, oh, you know, he can't really do anything because his, uh, he sings, what is this? He sings songs that make men mad, and he's like, you should hang him, and he's beyond my reach. A great poet is greater than any king. His songs are mightier than my scepter, for he has near ripped the heart from my breast when he chose to sing for me. So he has this very, in his old age, he has this sense of whimsy, right? Where he's, he's the young Conan wouldn't feel this way at all. There's this great line in, um, uh, Oh, uh, Tower of the Elephant, where somebody talks back to him, and uh, Robert E. Howard has this castaway of like, and he didn't get his skull split open because he's a man of civilization, and that just doesn't happen in civilization. But if you were at Conan's world, you know, you die for saying that sort of a thing. And you could tell like young Conan's like that. So old Conan has gotten really soft, right? Yeah, he's really, really soft, but it, soft. it doesn't stop him from uh, just murdering the hell out of Ronaldo later on. <laughs> right, but he gives him, I think it's important because he gives Ronaldo a chance to leave. Right when he's slaughtering his way through the conspirators, when they when they um, after the whole thing with Epimetrius and whatnot, and, and they they get him in his royal apartments, uh, he does give Ronaldo an out, and he's like, "You can get out of this, man. Like I do not have to kill you here." And Ronaldo freaks out and charges him, and then Conan pantherishly, as he's always seems to be described, like a great cat, just strikes him down. Right for 
deciding to go for it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, like you, you, you like this this is not the character that you, you think of when you when you think of the of the Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, by by Krom, you know, Conan mm-hmm. the the barbarian. So like I, I think it's a it's a great introduction to 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 the character and um I, I really like the the weird element that, that, that sort of uh, added added on, you know. I mean, this this is weird tales. So like, it it, it starts out uh, like it, it could just be a historical fiction story, but then you you add in uh, Tothamon, who doesn't even really wanna wanna kill uh, Conan. He just he just wants his 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 uh, ring back, which he so happens to find just just a few scenes. You know, you know, after after talking about how how he he really wants his uh, uh, ring back, the ring that that made him a him a powerful wizard, he's just talking to this fat lazy guy, who's not even paying paying attention to him. It's it's hilarious. It's like a scene out of a sitcom, right? Because uh, Toth is talking to the guy uh, Dion, and Toth is reiterating his backstory as he is already. Uh, described it in the first scene. We're now in the third scene. Yeah. Uh, Thoth was a priest king. He had a magic ring that he stole from some underground pre-human ruins. He lived the high life in Stygia. Someone stole his ring. He no longer commanded spirit assassins. He fled to Aquilonia. Ascalante learned his secret. Ascalante's blackmailing him. And then Dion is like, oh, I wasn't even listening to that. I, I was just uh, thinking about my good luck charm. And then he pulls out this ring and he's like, see, I got this ring off a thief. He says it's magic and he claims he stole it from some priest king in the south. Uh, if Dion had been even just listening to what Thoth was saying, maybe he would live for another sentence or two after that. <laughs> yeah, I, it, I it's think... it's hilarious, and then and then uh, Tothamon strangles him and summons a demon. And yeah, and no, he he pulls out, he summons a demon, and he pulls out one of Ascalante's sandals because he keeps one of Ascalante's sandals on his person at all times, just in case he gets the opportunity to summon this baboon thing demon. Right, and on the off chance the that he finds his ring, he uh, that he finds his ring, he has the sandal there, ready to go. That's the kind of guy Thoth is. <laughs> he, well, he clearly, you know, he's a he's an ancient plotter, I guess. You know, like the just leaves no stone unturned. It's he, like the player that always has a has a waterproof sack on him in case they mm-hmm. get capsized or something. He he is a a professional bad guy, not to be messed with, right? And <laughs> yeah, and, every everybody else in the story is just an amateur by comparison. Absolutely, and <laughs> and I I love this 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 baboon demon, which I, I there there's there's at least two in D and D. There's the there's the Barlagura and the and the Garistro, which which are are both giant. Ba- baboon demons, which which could have been inspired by this by this creature, mm-hmm. um, and and I just I just love how how it's it's scary to to everyone, not just be, because of its of its you know size and its and its strength, but like it is it is, it is apparent to everyone that it's just this otherworldly, unnatural creature. Like even even Conan. Is is scared to death of this of this thing? Yeah, I mean Conan can fight guys because guys are made out of matter. This thing is made out of demon, not matter. <laughs> yeah, I, I, th- I think I think we we sort of lose that like a little bit in the in the modern sort of uh, you know presentation of demons in 
in D and D because I can I can see like a lot of players being like, oh, it's just a it's a it's a it's a thing with with teeth, but yeah, you know, it makes me think actually a little bit of uh, something. This is something I have not thought about in many many years, but I remember reading uh, the first Dragonlance novel, Dragons of Autumn Twilight. There's a sequence where the player characters, I'm just, you know, we can call them player characters. They're going through this, like, haunted uh, forest. There's concern that there's going to be undead. And one of the player characters turns to another one and says, you know, I'm totally willing to fight uh, the living, but I'm not sure how to fight the dead. And it turns out that you just you smash them and they they die you know they re die perfectly uh, perfectly fine. But even as a kid, I thought to myself, you know, that's a good point. Why do you think that uh, smashing a skeleton with a with a hammer is going to defeat it? Aren't the pieces just going to you know fuse back together again? Or maybe it'll be like the sorcerer's apprentice, and suddenly you have a whole bunch of skeletons, maybe tiny ones, all trying to kill you. Um, it's there's this sort of uh, mundanity. That is imposed on the uh, on these horrible um, supernatural monsters a lot of the time, because kind of unthinkingly. Yeah, and I mean Conan does hit it with a sword, and it and it dies. Yeah, that's true. So, so but that, that does kind of defeat my whole thesis. Thank you, Jeff. But you. but my 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 point is like he doesn't just like stare at it and sniff in disdain and bo- and, and like, oh you're just a giant thing with teeth. I've killed. I've killed, I you know, I've killed tigers and lions and gorillas, you know, before. No, he is he is scared to 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 his soul because it is it is a a supernatural thing. And that's kind of beautifully Lovecraftian too, right? To call back to like your guys' earlier com- uh, discussions on this podcast about Lovecraft's work, it is that sort of because it's beyond human ken. That's kind of what you get from it. Why he's unnerved by it is exactly what you're talking about. It's not even that it's like quasi corporeal; it's just that it it doesn't exist in the reality Conan understands, and so it just unnerves him really deeply. I think I think actually the the only reason he is able to to kill it at at all is is because he gets this vision of Epimetrius who you know in enchants his sword with with you know the 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 holy symbol of uh I, I guess Mitra which which is the the titular phoenix on the sword I, I guess Mitra yeah. is is a is a deity of whatever whatever uh the Aquilonian Aqu- pantheon Aquilonia yeah yeah yeah, and so Conan is, he has this dream that seems to be taking place on like a discarded set from the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. It's really sounded to me a lot like Lovecraft's Dreamlands. And he meets uh, Epimetrius, who is, who is like Merlin, um, except he's helpful. <laughs> well, you would, you would know no more about uh, the, 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 the Arthur stories than, than I would, because you, you wrote that epic uh, billion-part series on... Now available on Amazon. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, he does it uh, within the dream. Epimetrius blesses Conan's sword, and the act of having that dream wakes Conan, and he discovers that he's already holding his sword, and it is marked as if in the dream. Yeah, so we get, we get sword fights, we get, we get supernatural uh, elements, we get you know, an, an evil wizard who is a consummate over, over planner, I mean, it's it's like it like this is is a great introduction to both the character and and the world that he that he lives in, and then uh, the the next story, uh, the Frost Giant's daughter, takes us uh, uh, back in time, 
and this one is, I believe, widely regarded as the story that, that is set earliest in Conan's life. Which um, is, seems, seems pretty plausible. It's definitely set uh, before either of the other two stories of these three. Right. I mean, obviously, Phoenix, and, Phoenix on the Sword is set long after the other two, but it's clearly set uh, before the God and the Bull. Right. All, all that we actually know about like Conan's like origin story, which which he like he he talks about his his homeland uh, Samaria in the Phoenix on on the sword, mm-hmm. and he, he says like it's it's a, like a gloomy depressing place. So, um, I so like I don't I don't know if like all Sumerians are giant muscular barbarians, and Conan's the only one who had the sense to leave. Well, what he says is that all Sumerians are just grim. They're pessimistic and they're no fun, which is why he left Samaria and went to um, Asgard. Right? Because they're more fun there. Got it. And it seems like there's more to do, too. Samaria just seems rainy and just kind of bleak, hilly landscape. It doesn't seem like there's a lot going on. In my notes, I have Aquilonia labeled as not Rome and Samaria labeled as not Denmark. So Conan, Conan, Hamlet, really supposed to be. Conan and Hamlet, I think, are basically the same character. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I guess, yeah, Scotland makes sense, too. I can't. And that's really what he's going for. Like, in his, especially like when you look at his essay on the Hyborian Age, mm-hmm. Howard was really obsessed with his own ancestry. And so he really wanted this guy to be sort of like the, the antediluvian ancestor of his people, right? And so because of that, Sumerians are this kind of like, they have that sort of Highland Scottish feel to them at times, right? That's interesting. But mm-hmm. like he's 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 like bronze skinned and and dark haired, which is not really what you what you think of when you when you think of Scottish or Danish. So, is he actually right. described as bronze skinned at any point? I don't know. That's uh, just how I always picture him. That's how he always is in in art, really. Yeah, I noticed uh, in these stories that Conan is generally not really described as a big guy like a like a bodybuilder. He's he's in terrific shape. But and has like zero percent body fat, but he's not. Uh, he doesn't weigh three hundred pounds. Is not. Well, he's, the he's described as as got. being lithe, you know, like a, like a tiger at times. But he's also described, I, I believe, as as like the the adjective massive is is used. Oh, is it? In 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 places. Well, let me. I could I could do a quick. Thank goodness for word search. Yeah. Uh, in uh, in in the god here here we go here we go uh, in in the god in the in in the bowl when uh, Aris the watchman first lays eyes on Conan it says Aris saw a tall powerfully built youth naked but for a loincloth and sandals strapped about his ankles his skin was burned brown as by the suns of the wastelands and hmm. Aris glanced nervously at his broad shoulders massive chest and heavy arms. A single look at the moody, broad-browed features told the watchman that the man was no Nemedian. Uh, he's, he's, and he, he has a mop of unruly black hair, uh, and underneath smolder a pair of dangerous blue eyes. So, I mean, he's maybe not naturally brown-skinned, but he, you know, he, he doesn't wear, 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 a, wear a shirt ever. And he's definitely very large, yeah. Yeah, so... 
I mean, he is he is paradoxically both large and nimble. He's good at what he does. Yes. And it, what he does is not pretty. And they use panther-like a lot. I mean, that's a recurring thing for him. So I think that it's supposed to be that perfect mix of like agility and strength yeah, that I, we see embodied in Conan. I, I noticed the word tiger a lot more than more than panther, but same sort of I, idea. So anyways, um, the, the Frost Giant's daughter uh, takes place in... Uh, some some sort of uh, Viking land. He he's either fighting for the the Asgardians or the Vanaheimians, um, which which are I, I guess are both sort of Viking analogs. Just just like two countries of them. Is is that the assumption here, or am I simplifying things? My notes say not Sweden and not Norway. So your guess is as good <laughs> as mine. Yeah, it seems like the distinction is basically the color of their hair. So the Vanir who he's fighting against are like redheaded, but the Aesir who he's fighting with are like blonde. And that seems to be as far as their the distinction between them goes, because they both like worship Ymir and they both have kind of like Norse names. Right. And like in in the real world, Aesir and Vanir de- denote the the races that the that, that the gods belong to. Yeah. In in real world Norse mythology. So he's 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 just sort of like taking like actual real world words and like reappropriating them. Like 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 Stygia. Like Stygia mm-hmm. is a river in the Christian hell and he's he's using it like he's using it I guess to, as as a name for 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 the Nile. Yeah, I mean, if if the Stygian uh, nation is not Egypt, then my mental picture is wrong. Uh, well, I mean, if you're if you're viewing like Aquilonia as not Rome, I mean, Stygia is a is a Roman sounding name, so it, like it it could be the appellation that the the Aquilonians give to this country, and the Stygians actually call themselves you know something something else that sounds you know middle Middle Eastern Arabic. Sounding. Sure, sure. So, anyways, getting getting back to this to this amazing story. The Frost Giant's daughter. The Frost Giant's yes. daughter. So, Conan is helping um, Bragi, uh, the Asgardian, fight with a bunch of other Asgardians, Heimdall and the Vanir, and everybody except Conan and Heimdall are dead as our story opens. It's not clear why they were fighting. It's not clear why Conan was part of this fight. Um, but he's in it uh, to win it, and and Heimdall uh, survives until the till the end of the fourth paragraph, and then and then he is he is also dead, and it's it's just uh, Conan uh, until he gets this this vision of a lovely uh, woman who is who is naked except I believe for 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 her hair. Oh, she's described I think as being very lightly clad. Okay. Some kind of like wispy yeah. light tunic sort of thing. Not actually naked, but she may as well be. She she, she may as well be. She, she's certainly not dressed for the weather. No. Yeah, a wisp of gossamer not spun by human distaff. So this this kind of almost ethereal cloth. Right. And uh, it, it turns out that she, I mean, I mean uh, eventually we learn that this woman is the titular frost giant's daughter. And titular can be 
uh, read as a as a double on on Tandra there. Uh, her her name is Atali, Atli, something something like that. Something with it with an with an A. Um, but she's just sort of like playfully teases him, and he gets mad and chases her for a while, and. Uh, then she summons her brothers, who are like actually, I believe, uh, frost giants, mm-hmm. and Conan kills them, and then grabs her, and then she uh, vanishes. She calls out, to, yeah, she calls out to uh, Emir, her father, who right. has, who she's mentioned a few times already. Uh, she she calls upon him to intercede. There's a flash of blue light, and then Conan is down and out. Right. And then, so he's 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 found by his uh, Aesir companions, uh, and it it it's, it sort of ends kind of like the last story ended, right? Phoenix on the sword ends with Conan's advisors, you know, finding him, and Conan's kind of half delirious and talking about this this baboon demon, and initially they they don't believe him until he points out evidence, you know. Uh, to them, this story ends kind of the the same way with uh, Conan's uh, warrior friends finding him, and they're like, "Why did you wander off into the snow? Are are you crazy?" And he's like, "I I saw this this woman," and and they're they're like, "You're you're crazy, Conan." And he's like, "No, the only footprints look, are yours, bro." What's that? The only footprints are yours, bro. That's what they say to Conan. Yeah, until like he shows them like a, a lock of hair in his in his in his hand. So like the 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 ending of this story mirrors the ending of Phoenix on the on the sword, and the and the action of this story is actually pretty, you know, straightforward and and simple. It's it's, it's a it's a very simple story compared to Phoenix on the sword or God and the Bull. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of which are fairly tightly plotted. There's a lot of different things going on with different actors. I mean, maybe it's not incredibly complicated, but still more so than the Frost Giant's daughter, which you, know, you can sum up the whole plot of in about a sentence. Right. And so apparently this, this story was based on the story of Apollo and um, whoever else. Hold on. Daphne. Yes, Apollo and Apollo and Daphne. Apollo and thank you, Peter. I knew there was a reason that no we had you on the show. Subject uh, <laughs> matter expert. What did I say? Subject matter expert. You know what, Peter? You haven't talked nearly enough, probably because I won't shut up. Why don't Why don't you explain the connection? Okay. Well. Okay. So my Greek mythology is is a bit rusty, but um, it's this is what I was actually what I was going to talk about is where he really gets out his classical chops. Uh, Robert E. Howard does because this is a uh, reverse. So uh, Apollo is really enamored with Daphne, who is, for all intents and purposes, at least somewhat mortal. I think she might be like a like a nymph or something like that, but she is she is mortal. She's not a god, and so he desires her in much in the same way that uh, Conan. Like much in this very rapey way that Conan uh, desires Atali, and he's going after her. And before he's caught, or uh, Apollo catches um, Daphne, she's like whisked away. And I think maybe by Neptune. I can never remember that part, but it, for some reason it stands out to me like Neptune whisked her away. So he just did a reverse on it, right? Instead of a god chasing a mortal, now it's a mortal chasing a god, right? And her having to get the divine intercession of her father to keep her from his grasp. Yeah, and it, it, it's it's not like um, 
uh, uh, Tali is is entirely innocent here. She's she's clearly baiting him, trying trying to lure uh, Conan into a trap so that her brothers can can kill him. And we, we don't really know why. I, I, I guess it's just she's for... a she's a supernatural monster. I think that's all of the motivation that's supplied to her. Right. Pretty... Well, and it sounds like she's done this before too, because old Gorm. So Gorm is this guy at the end that when Conan's like, oh, I saw this like completely naked woman with weird hair and you know I was chasing her or whatever and Gorm is the one that's like oh my god that's a Tali I saw her too and it's interesting is because they're all you know everybody else I think it's uh, what Nyord and Horsa the two men that are with Gorm are um like you know old Gorm got a sword blow to the head when he was a kid you can't really trust him but Conan enters this and sees a Tali after he takes a blow to the head that cracks his helmet open Right, so they both have this kind of similar experience, like they are in a battle, they get hit on the head really hard, both mm-hmm. see this otherworldly woman that kind of lures them away. So I get the impression that for this kind of what happens in Nordheim, it's happening up there in the north of Hyboria, that her role is to just find fresh meat for her brothers. Like go to the battlefield and be like the really bad kind of Valkyrie, where instead of taking you to Valhalla when you die, you find the survivors and like lure them to their deaths. Kind of like a Lorelei character. Yeah, you see, you get a concussion, you see a Valkyrie. Yeah. And who wouldn't follow that, honestly? And, yeah, and, well, particularly if you have a concussion, you're not thinking clearly. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's that's certainly the inspiration for, like, half a dozen monsters in Dungeons & Dragons. I mean, how many how many classic monsters in the Monster Manual are just hot women who, like, they, they either cast charm on you or they just they just lure you into 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 a trap? Uh, which which is totally not sexist at all. Um. So yeah, we can move on from that. I think. Yeah, I think yeah. so. So our our third story is the God in the, in the Bowl, uh, and this story um, it it was written at at the same time as the the others, but was not published until uh, nineteen fifty two. And it was heavily rewritten by uh, L. Sprague de Camp, and there's apparently some some controversy over that because you know purists are like, how can how can you rewrite the master? And it's it's, it's not even like like major stuff. Like it's just like changing grammar and things. Um, yeah, I mean, I would I would call this my favorite story of the three, and um, it's definitely because it's uh, we well, have it's a murder mystery. You have Conan the Barbarian becoming Conan the Detective. Yeah, almost. Uh, well, except that he... I mean, he doesn't really care, but he's there. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, this. So what you're saying, Jeff, is this was the inspiration for the anime series Conan, the, the, the detective. That is exactly what I am saying, and <laughs> I would go to the mat for that assertion. All right. Um, so here we're, um, I, I don't think we're in Aquiloni, we're in, uh, Numidia. Yeah, Numidia, and that's, that's the, so the quote that you began with is from the Numidian Chronicles, and right. Numidia and Aquilonia are neighboring countries, and they seem to be the big two for Hyboria. Like, Aquilonia is the big, like, Roman Empire of its age, like, really important, and Numidia is its next-door neighbor, not quite as powerful, but enough to be a huge a huge thorn in the side of the Aquilonians. So okay. there's, like, this there's this line in um, 
in uh, they talk about Numidia in Phoenix on the Sword because that's one of the ways that they've conspired. The the Rebel Four have gotten together and get Conan's uh, guard. Um, oh, I'm gonna just it's maybe Publius, right? Or uh, Publius, yeah. Uh, or or Palantides. There you go, Palantides, the leader of the Black Dragons. They like one of those guys. They lure away to Numidia, right, on some sort of diplomatic mission you know like all right his his buddy that he's uh drinking with in the in in the opening yeah Yeah. the assassins uh the assassins scheme in the phoenix on the sword uh strikes me as kind of unwieldy because in addition to uh emptying the city of conan's troops and uh bribing guards so that they're uh pulled off their usual patrol so they have a route into the uh king's chamber uh they expect conan to be lying there asleep uh, they find him awake with his sword, so you know they they end up in in trouble. But when they're when they're sneaking in, their plan involves twenty guys sneaking in, uh, which is something that I it makes for a great fight scene because you have Conan fighting uh, twenty to one odds, uh, which is great. But there's it's there's really no explanation as to why uh, they felt it was necessary to have twenty guys sneak in, uh, one of whom is a minstrel. Rather than an assassin. Well, well that, bar- that bardic knowledge skill is really in- you get into the wrong hallway and you're like, who who knows this bardic knowledge role? One There's one Ronaldo. minstrel, twenty guys inspire courage. Suddenly, suddenly twenty of your guys have a five percent better chance to hit. That's true. I mean, uh, so this is the this is the inspiration <laughs> for like the old school. Uh, you go into the dungeon with the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker NPC hirelings. <laughs> it seems like that's about right. <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, the god in the bowl is the story yeah, that we're, that we're talking about. Um, so we we get introduced to a, a whole bunch of other vaguely Latin named uh, NPCs in this in this story that that I I can't remember all their names for for the life of me. We 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 have the Watchman Aris. Uh, the murder victim is a guy named uh, Kalian Publico. And then yeah. we've we we've it's... got two detectives, one sort of like a nice guy and one sort of like a mean like he plucked out a girl's eyes, I think, because uh she wouldn't give him in information. Yeah, Demetrio is the good cop and Dionys is his assistant, the bad cop. Right. And Demetrio is really kind of the main character of the story. Yeah, for, like for the bulk of it, he's the he's the point of view character. Conan isn't isn't even really their their protagonist. Like he's yeah. just sort sort of there. Um, so Aris finds the body of Kalian Publico, who is the curator of this temple museum. Yeah, it's called Kalian Publico's Temple. It is described as a museum. It, it's sort of the it's it's the sort of mu- museum that that gets patronized by Indiana Jones a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, one would one would think because it's it's it it clearly has like all sorts of like artifacts that that, that may or may not uh, be magical or or cursed in it, in it. Um. So yeah, so so uh, Aris finds finds the body, and at the same time he finds he finds uh, Conan, uh, who was who was there there to steal, uh, not to kill. Uh, so this is this is, is the part of, of his career where he is is a is a reaver and a and a and a thief, a thief um, for hire. Right, a thief a thief for hire, um, and, and and I do want to get into into the, to the discussion later of whether or not uh, 
Conan actually resembles a D and D barbarian. But we will we will we will table that for the for the end of this uh, episode. So uh, the the watch is called and they they question uh, Conan and Conan uh, growls a lot and says a lot of very aggressive things. For a guy who's surrounded by cops, he really has kind of an attitude. Well, he's got a big sword and he knows how to use it. Um, <laughs> and I just don't yeah. think he really respects uh, people in civilization. I think that he thinks they're just weaker than he is by default. You know that his life in the in the wilderness and like running around Nordheim for some time and stuff. I just think that he, especially in his youth, because he's clearly pretty young here, right? He has that kind of youthful hubris, right? I don't think he thinks he's touchable yet, like a yeah, teenager I, that gets arrested, like you know, goofing off with his buddies or like taking his parents' car, right? I think it's that same yeah, sort I, of. I agree. I, I don't think it's. The, I don't think that we're meant to believe that Conan is just so badass that he could easily take all these guys on. Although in Phoenix of the Sword, we saw him take on. The this many guys. Um, I well, think the, that this the is demon Conan took being care arrogant. Of, in the in the in the Phoenix on the sword, I think I think the demon took care of a large number of those twenty guys. Um, <laughs> uh, about half of them. Yeah. So, but and, and, but we 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 did see him in the last story being the only survivor of this of this bloody battle uh, in in in. Uh, Vanaheim. So, like, we we know that that he knows how to use his sword, and and we know that he can take on on a bunch of guys and probably come out on on top. So his his attitude is is not entirely um, un, unjustified here, but it is it is definitely irksome to uh, the guards, uh, especially uh, Di- Dionys. Um, and they 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 do eventually. Uh, come to blows at at some point, like like violence breaks out. I forget over over what, and uh, Conan manages manages to s- severely injure a whole bunch of people. Yeah, I think that the character Aris, who's like the night watchman at the at Callian Publico's place. I mean, I'm pretty sure Conan. They say he punches out his teeth. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Like gets him in the and oh, every time I read that, it's that same sort of like. Ah, just kind of weird feeling. I can't even imagine what that would. Yeah, and 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 Aris is just like be. a nice guy who's just who's just there doing his his job. Like he isn't even like mean or rude to Conan at all. He just he just happened to be uh, at the at the end of Conan's fist. Yeah, he's uh, the security guy at the front desk of the building. You yeah. know, and that's that's who Conan's. Yeah, I I hear you. And they question Conan. His story is full of holes. Uh, you know, he somehow was familiar with the layout of the temple, even though he says that he just broke in to steal food. Uh, it's obvious that he didn't break in to steal food because, you know, you'd bake, bake, break into a bakery or something if you were going to do that, not into a museum, blah, blah, blah. But uh, Conan is not forthcoming initially. Right. And at, at some point, they they get this uh, caravan driver and, and this, this nobleman who are both lurking outside, and it, it, it turns out that Conan was, was hired by this guy. Uh, and and the nobleman uh, denies it in in typical snobbish. I mean this this, this guy seems like he in, inspired like half the noblemen that that show up in in Ed Greenwood's s- stories because he writes them just like this. Like the like, the impression I got from um, Astrius, I think is his name, Astrius. Uh, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. I I got kind of a, a camp gay kind of. 
uh, vibe off of him. Mm. Yeah. Well, I don't. Yeah, I don't definitely. know if if that was even like the stereotype at this at this point. Uh, I have tried to determine the origins of that stereotype, and I think that it existed uh, by the 30s, but I mean, I I'm think not so, sure. My grandfather, before he died, had made some sort of like fan of musical theater comments, and he was born in like 1920, so I just always assumed that was like really old. Yeah, it, apparently it was a thing in silent movies. Huh. Yeah, which... Uh, would have predated this. But either way, he's, he's like meant to be preeming, pre- kind of preeming, right? Yeah. And, and what's interesting to me is Demetrio, once again, gives him an out. This is two characters in, an, in, in really a two stories pretty close together where you're going to die, you know, here, let's give you an out. So when Astrius comes lurking around and is like, oh, did he get the chalice I'm looking for? And they find out like Conan's like, that's the dude who hired me or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Demetrio's like, whoa, you're the nephew of the governor. Don't worry, we can make this go away. Right? Like, do you know this guy? Because if so, we'll just hush this up. We'll, you know, we'll take him away. Don't worry about it. And Astrius is like, no, I don't know him. Right? But they give him that out, right? Where it's like, oh, it's totally fine that you, you know, you're powerful enough that you could pretty much plot the death of anyone you want to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, right. So, I mean, clearly this, this guy is an idiot, right? Oh, so foolish. And then, uh, at I at at what point do we do we actually learn about the bowl? Um, I I forget who brings it up, but we we learn that Kalian Publico had uh, recently acquired a sarcophagus, I think, which which he had uh, sort of. Uh, rescued, I think, from from a caravan that was going to take it somewhere else. Yeah. So the uh, priest of Set was sending it to the priest of Ibis, and it was um, captured by uh, Kalian, who was actually holding it uh, in trust for its intended recipient. It was not part of the the temple collection. Uh, which is why Kalian was sneakily going to look at it in the middle of the night rather than uh, just doing it during the day, since it's his museum. Why is he sneaking around? And well, that's the see- explanation for it. Well, he wanted to lift it. That's that's kind of what I get, is because his... his uh, you know, when we run into his chariot driver, right, as they kind of say that he was going to frame Aris for it, right? Like, he was going to go and get that sarcophagus and be like, was, oh, it's was- missing! He was going to break it open, take the treasure that he assumed was inside, like gems, jewelry, etc., and then afterwards blame Arius for it. Yes. And then what, what was in the sarcophagus was not, in fact, a, a treasure, but was something that, that uh, killed him. And I think, I think it's uh, at, at, at some point a, a fight... Break breaks out. Somebody pushes Conan uh, too far, and everybody starts fighting. And then I think um, uh, Demetrio is is he the? Um, oh, Demetrio no, is the detective. It's it's Primero. I think he's he's the caravan driver. Yes. Uh, yeah. He he winds up in the room with the monster, 
and he comes out of that room and just says, the god has a long neck. And, like, he, he's laughing like the protagonist in a, in a Lovecraft uh, s- story. And then he falls over dead and everybody runs. At this point, I kind of felt like uh, when you're watching a zombie movie and the zombies are first appearing, and you know because you know you're watching a zombie movie that they're zombies, but the characters in the movie, you know, they're, they're baffled by the situation. They're like, um, you know, what's, what, how on earth could, uh, could something have crushed the guy's windpipe? Uh, how did that heavy cable that's splotchy that's wrapped around a high marble pillar uh, up there, how did it get there? Only a snake, hint, hint, uh, could possibly <laughs> climb that pillar. Uh, they even talk about the grooves inside the bowl looking yes. like it's coiled. Yes, There's just coiled. tons of foreshadowing. Coils, it's incredibly... Oh. They're hitting us. He's hitting us over the head with it. I, I love... <laughs> I love... Uh, Robert E. Howard, but he really is kind of like ah, there's a naga in the bowl. Yeah, no, I, like, I love, I love. Like I said, the story is my favorite of the three because uh, it's just so. It could very easily be you could just change all of the names and half of the descriptions, and it could be set in uh, Los Angeles or uh, New York, somebody's private museum. Well, and except that 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 these these people. Uh, have have at least enough knowledge of the ancient world to 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 have to have the good sense to beat a hasty retreat as soon as Primero falls over dead. They're not like we should find out what that was. They're like no. They're like we need to get out of here. Everybody except for Conan who goes to in, investigate, and that's when we we actually uh, see the thing. And 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 first we we see just this this perfect head. Like peeking out over over a screen, and it, it's a it's a it's a human head, right? Yeah, yeah. So at this point, Conan is the only person who's able to walk around because in the immediately preceding scene, Conan maimed a bunch of people. Uh, so it's just Conan and Demetrio are the only people alive, and Demetrio is badly wounded. Right, and well, it 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 says here like like a bunch of people ran screaming for for the door. So I'd like. Okay, my sweeping generalizations are not always correct, Jeff. That's true. I'm I'm sorry, Jeff. <laughs> All right. Um, but anyways, yeah. So like, I I I don't think Howard like actually calls out what it is, but it is it is pretty much a a naga from the D and D monster monster manual, and I and I think uh, Conan uh, lops its lops its its head off. Yeah, Conan's fight with the Naga is really anticlimactic. He just you know, kills it in the end. Well, and he has a good sense to get out of there. That's the thing. He kills it and is like, oh, God, it just, like, bolts. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, doesn't loot anything. Like, no searching for traps. He is out a window. Right? As soon as he slaughters the thing. Right. It, 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 it says, it says the, the, the full horror of it rushed over the, the Sumerian and he fled, nor did, his, nor did he slacken his, his headlong flight until the spires of Numeria faded. So, like, even, even after the thing is dead, like, it's, it's so un, unnatural that, that he just he can't be in the, in the room with it. He booked it out of the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, anyways, what yeah. a great story. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. 
We get we get a, a lot of characters. We 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 have a mystery, and then we we end with a with a with a monster, and uh, it's it's good good fun. So, what do we think about Conan? As a as 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 a as a character, and like I I want want to talk about Conan compared to the D and D barbarian. Like so, the the Dungeons and Dragons Barbarian is a character class that specializes in this this sort of rage uh, me- mechanic, right? He gets supernaturally mad. He he hulks out. He goes into a battle trance or whatever, and the rest of the time he's sort of like this this savage uh, Indian brave type of warrior, you know. Tied to tied to nature, doesn't know how to how to read. Um, hates magic items in some editions of D anD D. Right, hates yeah. hates clothes and and armor, but is 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 nimble and good good with 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 traps. Yeah, I think that somewhere in Appendix N uh, that we haven't gotten to yet, there is a character that probably matches that really closely. The, the whole barbarian rage thing. I don't think that character is Conan, um, despite him being known as Conan the Barbarian. Yeah, he's sort of pre-rage barbarian. So if you look at, I, I think, um, you know the barbarian in Unearthed Arcana from AD&D First Edition? That one is the Conan barbarian. Um, has to use certain types of weapons, can't use all armors right away, has a leaping and springing ability, um, is harder to backstab. I mean, Conan has, in, throughout these stories, he's really hard to get the drop on. Mm-hmm. Um, innate kind of magic resistance comes later, and I think the most important part that gets kind of Conan-like is he can hit things he shouldn't be able to hit, right? So I have a barbarian in the in the game, in the first one game that we I run for my fiance's family and like her dad plays the barbarian and that's kind of the offset he can't use a magic weapon you know for several levels but in like two levels he can hit anything that would need a plus one or better to hit just naturally can just do it right and i think that's definitely pulling from that conan sort of otherworldly might sort of thing Hmm, maybe i mean in this story his ability to hit the baboon demon is the result of the faux merlin's blessing oh yeah that is true uh, and I don't know that the Naga has supernatural resistance to getting its head lopped off that Conan is able to break through, but I don't know that he doesn't. Right. Yeah. The whole I mean, the whole concept of requires a plus one weapon uh, or better weapon to hit is not something that I think is inherent to literature. I think it's a it's, it's a gameism kind of thing, which is yeah. you know fine, which is fine. Yeah, I, I don't I don't mean to knock it uh, in saying that. <sighs> Yeah, Conan. But, Conan seems to be like almost more like a like a fighter rogue. Like if we're if we're gonna give him, if I was modeling him in third edition or fourth edition or fifth edition, uh, certainly that's where I would go. I wouldn't make him a barbarian, based on what we've read here, at least. Right, and that's how they statted him out too in the um, I think it, the Conan modules that they released, the TSR released. He's like a twelfth level fighter and like a fourth level rogue. Uh, there's a Dragon Magazine article that I have a PDF of somewhere, I think, where he is statted up as he has uh, psionic powers, among other things. Really? Yes, he has like animal empathy. Oh, oh, that makes actually. I think I think yeah, a I lot of that. things in first edition, like like 
psionics used to be a lot more pervasive. Like, like I think it, it sort of morphed into the uh, spell-like abilities that that we we have today, or or just like general class features were expressed as psionics. Mm-hmm. Or something. And thank goodness for that, because psionics was a complete. I mean, this side side note, a complete pain in the butt. You know, you had, like, this weird equation of percentages based on intelligence and wisdom scores to figure out, and everyone always wants you to make, have, allow them to roll for it. Like, I've never had a funny player that hasn't been like, I want to roll for psionics. Like, that's never... No one doesn't ask for it, oh, you know? It's so obnoxious. I was in a uh, second edition game in high school, rolled for psionics. My character went irretrievably insane during Ooh. character creation. Ouch! That gosh, that's like, isn't it like Traveler? You could die in character. Yeah, I, I knew you do that in Traveler. <laughs> Didn't know that you could do that in uh, AD and D. What you you can't good. just play the insane character? <laughs> no, I played his, uh, you know, his like identical twin brother, oh, or okay. the same guy but from Earth too. I see. Uh, mo- mostly, you know, we were high school students, so I think I probably just kind of threw a fit, and uh, they allowed me to ignore that. You 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 flipped the table. Ah, probably. I was terrible in high school. You you raged like a barbarian. And, Very and like a barbarian. T- Very like a barbarian. It's all coming together, Jeff. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Peter, Jeff, I wanna I wanna thank you guys. This has been an excellent start to our our coverage of the Robert E. Howard Conan stories. Um. You know, I always have a hoot doing these things. I am looking forward to the next one already. Awesome. All right. Peter, thank you for coming on the show. Thank Jeff, you, you want to remind people where they can find you? Uh, my blog is at jeffwick.com. Um, I am currently going over in excruciating detail the Welsh classic, the uh, Mabinogion. Um, and my previous works are all still there on the blog, and you can buy them on Amazon. Oh, I, so I, awesome. I believe so that awesome is that you can currently buy them on Amazon. a uh, free-to-play MMO with cute uh, anime characters. I'm pretty sure I've seen that, that uh, banner ad. You can buy them on Amazon is, a, uh, is an MMO? No, the, <laughs> <laughs> no, the uh, Mabinogion. Ah. Could well be. I know nothing about the Mabinogion in pop culture aside from, you know, the uh, Chronicles of Prydain. Oh, uh, Lloyd Alexander. Yes. Peter, yes. Peter and I were, were talking about that uh, b- b- before, you, you, uh, before you came on. So th- this conversation has come full circle. Again. Uh, right. So listeners, it is once again that time. My guests and I have had an excellent discussion, but now we must bring the show to a close. If you have questions or comments for me, or even just questions in general about, I don't know, the universe or something, you can contact me through The Tome Show at thetomeshow at gmail.com. If you would like to join our elite ranks of people who read stories and talk about them, send an email to the same email address I just mentioned. I'll say it again. The Tome Show at gmail.com. You do not, technically speaking, have to put Appendix N in the subject line, but gosh, it sure does help. Next month, we will be checking back with Edgar Rice Burroughs, who was still pumping out action-packed sword and planet fiction in 1932. We will, we will be reading Pirates of Venus, the start of a new series starring a new hero. 
After that, we will be going back to Lovecraft for a time. In April, we will read three of his stories, Pikmin's Model, The Color Out of Space, and The Dunwich Horror. Following that, we will be talking about some of his longer stories, including The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath and The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. I'm not sure what the exact schedule will be for those, but keep listening! This has been a Tome Show production of Appendix N, Episode 13, The Stories of Conan by Robert E. Howard, Part 1. As always, thanks for listening.